Gracias. Elvis. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Ozzy Osbourne, a hard-rocking Beatles fanatic who morphed into the Prince of Darkness as he and his band Black Sabbath pioneered a new genre, heavy metal. His solo career left Sabbath in the dust at the same time his demons got the better of him. But this isn't about Ozzy. This is about Sharon Osbourne, daughter of the so-called Al Capone of the music business, who had a vision for Ozzy after Sabbath and willed it into being while struggling to achieve her own independence from her devious father. It's no exaggeration to say she saved Ozzy Osbourne's life in addition to his career. I'm Nikki Lynette, and this story is about a girl. The man was on the ground, already subdued, screaming for help or mercy, neither of which seemed likely to arrive. He'd made a mistake. He could see that now. Jumping the fence at this ritzy-looking party had been a whim. He just thought he'd cop a few free drinks, have some fun. Worst case, he'd get booted. He didn't anticipate that booted, in this case, would mean getting the shit punted out of him. As he attempted to protect his head, he could just barely perceive the person standing over him, pummeling his body with vicious kicks. It was a young girl. Sharon Arden paused her assault only long enough to look over at her father, who was also stomping the hapless trespasser alongside her and thinking, He's going to be so proud of me for this. She was 16 years old. Sharon's father was Don Arden, an entertainer, a singer who'd reinvented himself as a promoter and soon a music manager. Of all these, reinvention was perhaps his greatest skill. He was the very definition of a self-made man, forging an identity based on where he wanted to go, not where he came from. Born Harry Levy, he changed his name to escape the anti-Semitism he'd experienced in the Army. As far as names go, Don Arden was about as meaningless as he could get. A blank canvas, Sharon called it, that says nothing about who you are. As a singer, Don had one too many fights with venue management, including a final brawl with the stage manager that called him Jew Boy. He was blacklisted forced into packaging his own tours. As a song and dance man, he had some modest success with these shows, but as the booker and promoter, he was making some serious money, and money was pretty much all he cared about. Don Arden was not in it for the love of entertaining. 
1960, he was the MC on a tour with rockabilly sensation Jane Vincent. And the frenzy that Vincent inspired in his crowds was enough to make Don leave behind his own career as a performer. He began promoting big tours with stars like Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis, and soon got involved as a partner in the Star Club in Hamburg, Germany, where the Beatles honed their chops. They performed nightly at the Star Club in an extended residency. And one day, John Lennon approached Don. He knew that Don had had some success working with Gene Vincent and wondered if he'd be interested in managing his band. Don laughed in his face. Rock and roll was American, not British, and he wasn't interested in a group of northerners aping Elvis and Vincent in their leathers and pompadours. Don didn't care about the music, just the money, and eventually, the image. The image, that is, of himself as a successful man with whom you do not fuck. And he spent lavishly to promote this image. He never had money for long. And what he did have was mostly skimmed or outright stolen from clients or partners. If he earned 4,000 pounds one week, Sharon said, he'd spend 5,000 pounds and then we'd be back in the shit. But he got himself a fancy office, a big house in Wimbledon, and he drove a Rolls Royce, though none of it was ever in his own name. He draped his wife in diamonds and cultivated relationships with criminals and mob figures. He dodged debt collectors and repo men by sending his little daughter to answer the door as he fled out the back. As she got older, Don put her to work in this role more and more often, sending her to various bank managers to plead innocence on the part of her poor father, who will be back from New York on Monday with bags full of cash for you. Sharon was oblivious to what this all signified, that her father was, at best, a shady crook. She was just happy to be doing something to please him. She thought he was a model of virtue. He told her so himself. He began managing the small faces in the move, the latter of which he'd stolen from their manager, Clifford Maxwell. Maxwell had been persuaded to part with his clients when Don Arden stormed his office, yanked the phones from the wall, took Maxwell's cigar from his mouth and pushed it into his forehead until there was no cigar left. Violence, Sharon said, wasn't the last resort. It was the first resort. Don never wanted to call the authorities, nor wanted to sue, because he thought that roughing someone up was a quicker and more effective way to handle problems. He grew up that way, a street kid fighting to survive. Sharon would come to understand this about Don. What confounded her, though, was that it was just obviously bad business. He stood to lose more than he would gain. At some point, Don's ego had become more important than even the money. But it would take a long time for Sharon to break the spell her father had under her. Her allegiance to him was so ingrained. She traveled with her parents to Nice for a music business conference in 1977 when she was working for Don full-time. She was on a dinner date with the head of KTEL Records at the Carlton Hotel when she heard screaming across the room. 
people began to rush over to the sound, and Sharon followed. It was, of course, Don. He'd gotten into a fight with a guy called Patrick Meehan. Meehan's own father had worked for Don, but when tasked with minding a band called Black Sabbath that Don was trying to sign, Meehan signed them himself and started his own operation with his son. In Don's eyes, this was the ultimate betrayal. Sharon arrived in time to see her father now literally stomping the man in the lavish hotel dining room. She saw one of Meehan's bodyguards pick up a huge glass coffee table, poised to smash it on Don's head. Sharon instinctively charged this giant guy and body tackled him. He lost his footing with the weight of the table and went down. Then he began to beat the hell out of her as a full-on brawl broke out before security arrived to break it all up. It was among the first in a too-slow series of wake-up calls for Sharon as she began to see all that was wrong with Don Arden and the way he operated. She hated this behavior, the craziness, the instability, but it was fundamentally part of her now. As with Don, it was just the way she came up. Sharon's mother, Hope, was a different creature, but in her own way, no less dysfunctional a chronically dissatisfied narcissist who became severely depressed after a serious car accident when Sharon was a child. Sharon said, I loved her because she was my mother, but I didn't like her because she embarrassed me. Like Don, Hope knew the value of appearances. As the most visible sign of her husband's status, she would put herself together to go out, but their home was a disaster. Sharon and her brother would have to wash with dish soap because their mother never bought shampoo. There would be no food, no toothpaste, filth and clutter everywhere. Sharon's bedroom was as sparse as a prison cell. She clung to her one decoration, an embroidered picture of a ballet dancer left there by Dixie, her half-sister from her mother's previous marriage. Hope was a mystery to her kids. One afternoon, they were walking together when Hope stopped short and walked into a liquor store. The kids followed to find her talking to a man. Children, this is your Uncle Ira. they never even known she had a brother, and she never told them anything more about him. Hope was interested in her children only in as much as they reflected on her and how well she was able to control them. She had a bitter and petty relationship to her older daughter. Hope would tell Sharon, Every boy your sister brings back here falls in love with me, and she can't stand the fact that they prefer my company to hers. When Dixie eventually left to start her own life, her mother said, She'll be back, you'll see. When she needs money, she'll be back. They always come back. When Sharon was 17, she became pregnant. You've got to get rid of it, her mother said. But there is no way you can have a child, Sharon. It will destroy your life. But you have to have an abortion. And so she did. It was enormously traumatic. She laid in bed for three days, unable to move. Her mother never even came into the room. Sharon was miserable. 
By the time she discovered her boyfriend cheating on her with a hairdresser, she badly needed an escape. It came in the form of Don's business in America. The Move, the band that Don had so colorfully taken off the hands of Clifford Maxwell, evolved into Electric Light Orchestra and by 1972 had blown up internationally under Don's managerial thumb. Sharon's brother David had been overseeing things in the U.S., touring with ELO, but was ready to come back to England. Sharon saw her opening. In April 1976, she arrived in Los Angeles. Black Sabbath guitarist Tony Iommi picked up the phone to make a transatlantic call. The band was in bad shape and had only just realized the extent of it. Sabbath had become hugely successful. They were living like kings. Big houses, fleets of luxury cars, servants, whatever they wanted was theirs. All they had to do was ask. But they did have to ask because they actually had nothing. The managers they signed with, instead of Don Arden, Patrick Meehan and his father, were just slightly more refined crooks. Sabbath had no money of their own. Nothing was in their names. Royalties, publishing. It all went to the Meehans. The band members didn't even have bank accounts. In Los Angeles, Sharon Arden answered Tony's call. He was the unofficial band spokesman and had stayed in touch with her since the early days when Don had been courting them. Now, Tony asked, do you think Don would consider taking over? Don would definitely consider it, if for no other reason than to fuck over the Meehans as they fucked him. It also didn't hurt the Sabbath was a cash cow for their managers, if not the band. Don set about trying to untangle the legal and financial messes they were in. He put Sharon in charge of their day-to-day management. Los Angeles had already been great for Sharon. Freeing in many ways. She quickly confounded the perception that she was just the boss's daughter. She was, of course. But when the boss is Don Arden, his daughter is not likely to be a pushover. In fact... Other people were irrelevant to Sharon's no-bullshit approach. First thing she did was unilaterally ditch the existing offices for a new place in Century City. She then had a run-in with a friend of Don's named Artie Mogul, who was the head of United Artists Records. But he screwed Don out of a takeover of the company, and Don's fury was unbound. Artie tried to talk to him through Sharon, Listen, Sharon. No, Artie, you listen to me. You're a piece of shit, and if I ever see you, I'll fucking kill you. Because you're a liar. A barefaced fucking liar. Clearly, Sharon was still operating as an extension of her father, however much she distanced herself. Sharon went back to work, motivating Black Sabbath to start writing and recording for a new album, with a tour to follow. This was the fastest way to get them earning again. She set them up in her rented house as a place to work. They'd hardly gotten anything done when Tony Iommi appeared in her kitchen. We want him out. Ozzy Osbourne, he meant. The band's singer for 10 years. 
You've got to be insane. You can't get rid of Ozzy. Without Ozzy, Black Sabbath isn't Black Sabbath. You know that. Tony wouldn't be swayed. Sharon had come to really like Ozzy. He was sweet and funny. Just a lovable guy. But she noticed how the band treated him like a joke. The court jester on a good day. She'd also noticed that while they all dabbled in drugs, Ozzy was regularly out of control. Months had passed with no creative progress. The band had a few ideas, but Tony told her that Ozzy's response was always, I don't want to sing on it. Then he was fired. Sharon couldn't believe it. She'd just taken over and they were imploding. She recommended a new singer, Ronnie James Dio, and Sabbath signed him on. As they got to work together, they realized that rather than heading home to England, Ozzy had remained in L.A., and they asked Sharon why. Because we're still managing him, of course, she said. What do you mean, Tony told her. You can't manage both of us. It's got to be one or the other. This stalemate was resolved when the band's producer offered to take them on as management clients. Sharon believed in Ozzy's potential. She'd heard his new songs and knew what a great performer he was. Her father agreed to let Sabbath go. Without Ozzy, they were a much bigger gamble. Okay, Ozzy, let's put a band together, she told him. Things were changing for Sharon on a more personal level, too. In L.A., she began to see some of Don Arden's scams for what they were. In one of these, he would invent a band out of thin air and then get an advance for them from the head of the record label, who was also in on the con. Sharon would deliver blank tapes, collect the check, and then redistribute it to Don and his conspirators. It was never enough money to attract attention, and Sharon rationalized it, telling herself no one was getting hurt. It was just a wealthy corporation. But then... Just as she was working to launch Ozzy's solo career, something happened that finally shook her faith in Don Arden. He left his briefcase at the L.A. house. When she looked inside, she found a see-through thong along with a note that read, Something to remind you of me. It was signed, Meredith. She found a Meredith in his address book and called the number. Don answered. Clues and rumors she'd ignored suddenly added up. Her father, the beacon of morality and ethics, was cheating on her mother. The hypocrisy of it stunned her, the way he denounced other people for the way they lived their lives. The whole structure of my life had imploded, she recalled. Everything I thought was good and right, and everything I fought for and fought other people for, was all bullshit. Everything that people had said about my father was true. I felt conned. I felt utterly conned. In 1980, Jeff Lynn, frontman of Electric Light Orchestra, came to talk to Sharon. Your father's been stealing from me. What do you mean, stealing? I mean, your father is a fucking thief. Jeff, do you know what you're saying? Your father owes me four million dollars. You can't mean this. Your father has stolen from me and I want my fucking money. He didn't want anything from her, 
He just wanted to let her know his lawyers were coming. She told Don, after he calmed down, he said, this situation is fixable. This situation was not fixable. He eventually got together the money he owed ELO, but of course he lost his biggest client. Sharon wanted out, maybe out of the music business altogether. It was nothing but crooks and it was getting worse. Now it was all crooks with law degrees, completely soulless, but she couldn't do it. I chose to stay, she admitted, because I liked the lifestyle and didn't want to give up the luxury. Don called her that summer. Would she come back to London to run the office? Her brother had been doing it, but needed to step away. The business was in deep shit, worse even than she thought. She went in and cleaned house, cut half the staff, dumped a bunch of clients, even put their buildings up for sale. What did Don do? Reversed it all, took the buildings off the market, resigned clients. Sharon was nearly past the point of caring. The only thing she was interested in now was getting Ozzy's debut album out. They paired him with a young guitarist named Randy Rhodes. She and Ozzy both loved him. He was an amazing player, and even more importantly, he boosted Ozzy's confidence, co-writing and helping him realize his new song ideas. Now the album was about to come out, but none of them knew what the live show would be like. They'd booked Ozzy for the Reading Festival, but Sharon knew they weren't ready for that. She canceled and instead booked some warm-up gigs at small clubs. Rehearsals in London were promising, and everyone was getting excited. Back at their motel one night, Sharon was partying with the band and a couple of friends, including a guy from the Don Arden office named Ronnie Fowler. The party dwindled until it was just Sharon, Ozzy, and Ronnie. Ozzy's hints at Ronnie to get lost were not hitting their mark until finally, Ronnie, I'm telling you, fuck off home. After that, Ozzy only recalls following Sharon into the bath. She figured it was a one-night stand, but didn't have much time to think about it because then the first warm-up show was upon them. Standing in the audience of a 200-capacity club in Blackpool on the English coast, Sharon held her breath. Ozzy walked onto the stage and flashed the peace sign. The audience immediately went wild. The band crushed their set. Oh my God, Sharon thought. He's done it. Beneath that was a more subconscious thought. I'm in love with him. Standing next to her in the audience was a woman she barely knew. Her name was Thelma, and she was Ozzy's wife. Sharon Arden knew Ozzy was married. In fact, he had two kids. She also knew that she was just one in a very long line of other women. None of it made much difference, since she didn't think it would amount to anything, and she just loved being with them so much. And from that first night on, she was with them a lot. After the warm-ups, they hit the road in Scotland. The one-night stand became another, then another. The shows were going great, and they were living in a joyous bubble. By the time the tour ended, Ozzy was planning to tell his wife, Thelma, he was leaving. 
Then all hell broke loose. When it came down to it, Ozzy, desperate not to hurt his kids, managed to tell Thelma about Sharon, but not that he wanted a divorce. In fact, the next Sharon heard, Ozzy was telling Don that Sharon's brother had to take over his management. He told Thelma that the affair was done. This was a no-go for Ozzy's guitarist, Randy Rhodes, who was actually signed directly as a client of Sharon and not Don. He knew as well as Ozzy that no one else had the vision for their careers that Sharon did. And if Sharon was fired, she was sure as shit not about to share her plans with anyone. Ozzy relented. He asked her to come back on a strictly professional basis. This was... Of course, bullshit, and they both knew it, but she agreed. At the very least, she had a responsibility to Randy. Ozzy's debut album, The Blizzard of Oz, became a massive success. Don Arden showed up to take full credit for saving his career, despite trying repeatedly to first get him back into Sabbath, and then trying to convince him to call his new act Son of Sabbath. Ozzy knew very well that Sharon was the mastermind. She motivated and encouraged him after he was fired from Sabbath, when no one wanted to know him. She found Randy for him. She was the one who helped him glam up his image. She planned the tours, headlining smaller venues rather than opening for huge acts. That way, she told him, you'll always have sold-out shows, and when people see sold-out signs, they want to go. Also, you'll be seen as a top billing act from day one. He finally had someone he could trust, who genuinely cared about him, and who was a brilliant strategist to boot. By the time the band embarked on an American tour in 1981, Sharon's affair with Izzy had started up again. They shared a double bed in the back of the tour bus. But Izzy was getting heavily into cocaine, and they were both drinking a tremendous amount in part because it helped keep out the difficulties of the world outside the bubble, and in part because there just isn't that much to do on the road apart from the show itself. Having learned at the knee of Don Arden, violence again became a routine part of Sharon's life. When a promoter tried to stiff her after one gig, she responded with a headbutt and a kick in the crotch. Wasn't this just the way you did business? It seeped into her relationship with Ozzy early on. Arguments regularly devolved into fistfights. Looking back, Ozzy said, it's shameful what I did when I was loaded. But at the time, they both acted as though it was normal. Sharon would end up bloodied and bruised, and in turn, she would destroy things. Glasses and lamps, Ozzy's clothes, even his first gold record for Blizzard of Oz, which ended up at the bottom of an elevator shaft in Buffalo, New York. She smashed a full bottle of scotch on the back of his head, and he responded by throwing her into a wall so hard that she broke two teeth. One morning, she woke up and barely recognized herself in the mirror. Her face was so beaten up. She could only assume it had been Ozzy's doing, because she didn't recall a thing. For years, she tried to escape the craziness of Don Arden's way of life, and here she was, living out the same pathologies. She had a moment of clarity. One of us, at least, 
has to stay sober. And it's not going to be Ozzy. She quit drinking on the spot. It was harder to quit Don Arden. Despite the money she and Ozzy were generating for him, he was still fucking them over. He withheld Ozzy's record company advance money until she finally told him that the band wouldn't play until he paid up. But he was also pocketing all the advance payments for the shows. But Sharon didn't see a way she could break with him and still manage Ozzy. So she soldiered on, stashing the money they were paid on the road to keep it from Don. Sharon is asleep on the tour bus when a thunderous crash knocks her to the floor. Suddenly, Ozzy screams at her, Get off the bus now! He pries the door open, and she can see that the rest of the bus is wrecked, the corridor bent at a wide angle. They stumble off the bus, and Sharon becomes aware that they are at some kind of small airport. She can see a landing strip, and beyond that, a house on fire. Something terrible has happened, but she can't make sense of it. She looks around for Rachel, her friend and housekeeper who had joined them on the road to help out, but she can't find her. Where's Rachel? She yells to Tony, their tour manager. He stuns her with his response. Rachel and Randy Rhodes were in a plane and it crashed. They're both dead. This still doesn't register, and it seems like a long time before she really gets it. There's a strong smell of gasoline and wreckage all over the ground, including what look like body parts. Randy and Rachel are dead. They had made a pit stop at the Florida headquarters of the bus company, which was also a charter plane business. The bus driver had taken Randy and Rachel for a ride in one of the planes. For whatever reason, the plane came down and clipped the bus before crashing into the house. Sharon convinced Ozzy to soldier on. She didn't know what would happen to them if they stood still for too long. They were both so emotionally wrecked. They finished out the tour with a substitute guitarist. A few weeks later, Ozzy proposed to Sharon. He said, if there's one good thing that came out of all of the shit we've been through on this tour, it would be making you my wife. His marriage to Thelma was already over. She finally had enough Ozzy Osbourne. When the divorce became official, he and Sharon were married in July 1982. Don, meanwhile, could see where things were headed. If he didn't do something, he would lose control of Ozzy's career completely. When the band returned to England after a Japanese tour, Don took Ozzy out for lunch and tried to convince him that Sharon was insane and that she botched the ELO situation, but that he could get their marriage annulled on the basis of her instability. Now it was Sharon who could see the writing on the wall. She and Ozzy flew immediately to New York to see their record distributor, CBS Records. They told CBS they were leaving Don Arden and were in litigation with him. And we will sue you, they said, if you give him any money. They had beaten Don's lawyer by one hour. Ultimately, they agreed to waive all the money Don owed Ozzy and pay a million and a half dollars to get out of his contract with Don's label imprint, Jet Records. 
CBS loaned them the money. She finally felt free of her father, but Don's vindictiveness wouldn't let him drop it. Sharon had crossed him, and in doing so, became an even more despised enemy than the Meehans. The word was out. She got a call from someone they'd worked with. Don had called him. He knows you're in New York and says to remind you that New York is a very dangerous place and says to tell you to watch your backs. There was an endless stream of lawsuits. Don's business hit bottom. Sharon's brother David went to prison after they kidnapped an accountant Don suspected of stealing from him and forced the man to pay them. Don escaped to California. At one point, he made another attempt to appeal to Ozzy. Don went to see him at the Beverly Hills Hotel and proceeded to accuse his own daughter of all kinds of vile and deviant behavior, in addition to theft and insanity. Ozzy said it was the most disgusting stuff I had ever heard, but he refused to react to what he was hearing, which only made Don more furious. Did you know all that, Ozzy? Did you know what your wife's really like? Yeah, Don, he said. I know all about Sharon. You do? Yeah. And? And what, Don? I love her. If you want to get the marriage annulled, we can arrange that for you, you know. No thanks, Don. After their kids were born, Don called their house in L.A. and spoke to the nanny. Tell them to leave town, he said. Otherwise, something might happen to their children. But Don was not the only person close to her she needed to worry about. Sharon Osborne sat in her living room one night in 1989. Her husband walked into the room and sat down across from her. We've made a decision, he said quietly. We, she thought. And what have you decided? That you have to die. Ozzy has spent the last few years in and out of rehab. At the beginning, he was at least funny and wild when he drank. Then his personality changed. He became frightening, more violent, attacking Sharon multiple times. But rehab had done nothing for him. Now in the living room, she looked into his eyes. There was nothing there. Jesus Christ, she thought. He moved closer. We're very sorry to have to do this to you, he said, eerily calm. But you see, we don't have an option. Then he was on her, choking the life out of her. She couldn't make a sound. Everything began to fade. She groped for the coffee table, where there was a security panic button. The last thing she remembered was clicking the button and hearing the scream of the alarm bell. She regained her senses to find Ozzy gone and the police at the door. She gasped. My husband tried to kill me. While he sat in jail over the next several days, Sharon agonized over whether to press charges. If she did, Ozzy would definitely go to prison. She thought about an incident years before, when she'd still been drinking. She blacked out and was arrested trying to drive home. I couldn't press charges, she said. 
He was so stoned, so gone, that it wasn't Ozzy anymore. Ozzy went off to rehab again as Sharon pondered divorce. He began to write her letters of deep remorse, and she eventually started to speak with him. But Sharon was also enjoying the sudden freedom of a life without Ozzy, without Don. And yet, when she finally took the kids to see him, she was actually surprised to find the real Ozzy, sane, sober, the man she loved. She told him she would have him put away if he ever touched her again. This would not be Ozzy's last rehab, but he never again laid a finger on Sharon. Sharon's mother, Hope, died in 1999, a stranger to her daughter and having never met her grandchildren. Dawn had lost everything, even the house in Wimbledon, which had been in Hope's name. After her death, Don experienced heart problems and was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Ozzy talked Sharon into a kind of reconciliation, and though she could never understand him, nor really forgive him, she also found she had no hate for him. She moved him to Los Angeles and took care of him until he died in 2007. Sharon's family became a cultural sensation in 2002 when their reality TV show debuted on MTV. She was pleased that everyone finally got to see the same sweet Ozzy she loved for so long. Ozzy has continued to make hit records, releasing some of the best of his solo career in the last few years, and he's reunited several times with Black Sabbath. He sold well over 100 million records and is a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But this isn't about him. This is about Sharon Osbourne, a woman who emerged from a dysfunctional childhood and the oppressive, chaotic dominion of her father to find love where she least expected it, helping to create a rock and roll legend in the process. This is About a Girl. About a Girl is produced by Scott Janovitz and executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sattler for Double Elvis. The show was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Scott Janovitz. For sources used in this episode, go to aboutagirlpod.com. Music by Scott Janovitz and Matt Tahaney, with additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. The show is on Instagram at aboutagirlpod, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.